What an amazing anthem to set up this text of Scripture from the book of Job. It's hard to know which text to put in the bulletin today because the whole story, all chapters of Job, hang together in such an important way. But on this day of the Academy Awards, I thought maybe best supporting actor, Ella Hugh, could have a voice. So I chose... Job 35, 1 through 16. I invite you to listen for God's word. Elihu continued and he said, Do you think this is to be just? You say, I'm in the right before God. If you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Observe the clouds which are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects others like you, and your righteousness, other human beings. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives me strength in the night, who teaches us more than the animals of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evildoers. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not greatly heed transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, as we come to worship today, we come. We come because so much of life remains a mystery. And as we explore this whole idea of suffering, may your spirit be with us and upon us and may you speak to us. For we come in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This week in planning for our annual meeting, which will happen later this morning, the clergy began asking themselves the question, who in our history and other churches that we have served have had a huge influence on our life? And when the question was raised, immediately Henry and Ernestine Bukema came to mind. Many years ago, I visited Henry and Ernestine in their home as Henry was approaching the end of life. It had been a tough year in their life together as his health deteriorated. Henry Bukema was a chaplain who landed at Normandy on June the 7th, 1944. The morning that they landed, his commanding officer told him to preach a sermon that day to the men on the ship. He did. Their ship was later sunk. 
He went on after the war to Japan, where he raised $75,000 from bizarre sales of U.S. clothing from San Francisco to start a Protestant denomination there. And the schools that had been established by that fundraising effort, providing children with training in Christian leadership, were still in existence the day I met him in his home. His first wife had died of leukemia, and he married his second wife, Ernestine, after only 26 days of courtship. So I entered his bedroom, where I found Henry listening to my sermon from Youth Sunday. And his first words were, I thank God for your ministry. You have no idea how affirming that is to a young pastor. I asked him and Ernestine, how are you doing? And Ernestine responded, you know, this past year, we've learned some wonderful things in a terrible sort of way. I've never forgotten that expression. I received a great deal from Henry and Ernestine Bukema. And when we talk here about every member in ministry, it means in part that we ministers receive as much from your faith as you do from ours. And it seems to me that the entire book of Job is learning about some wonderful things in a terrible sort of way. Suffering and God. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's from where I get my title for the sermon today. It's about an ancient challenge known amongst theologians as theodicy. How can we reconcile a good God with the experience of human suffering? Bishop Melvin Wheatley tells the story of preaching on the subject of suffering and its meaning in his Methodist church. And after writing as cogently as he could and providing as much profundity and insights, expounding the scriptures, witnessing to God's truth to the best of his ability, following the service, he was greeted at the door by a woman who commented, Oh, Reverend Wheatley, I never knew what it meant to really suffer until I heard you preach. (laughs) Human suffering. It breaks into our experience in the most inopportune times, in the most unexpected ways. There is no good time for bad things to happen. A phone call comes in the middle of the night. A heart attack occurs in the middle of the day. A car accident, an illness, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Suffering and grief come upon us quickly and unexpectedly, and we find ourselves searching desperately, agonizingly for answers to our question, why? Now, the book of Job in the biblical materials is one of the finest pieces of literature ever written. Thomas Carlyle, 
the 19th century Scottish essayist, described the book of Job this way. The, one, the most wonderful poem of any age and language, our first oldest statement of the never-ending problem, man's destiny and God's way with him here in this earth. There's nothing written in the Bible or out of it equal in literary merit. End quote. Now, Rabbi Kushner describes the book of Job in his book as, quote, a profound and beautiful book on the most profound of subjects. The question of why God lets good people suffer. End quote. Some commentators see a parallel between Job and the people of Israel. Their life begins with promise, health, wealth, national identity, and then subsequently they experience loss through exile and then look forward with expectation to a restoration. Other commentators see the outline of this book of Job as something of a parallel of the entire biblical story. Begins with blessing in the creation, then the loss in the fall, suffering through the history of God's people, complete with a crucifixion, a cosmic struggle between good and evil, and then finally restoration in Revelation. It's a complex piece of literature that takes up a complex problem for people of faith. Occasionally, maybe you hear as I do, people will use it the expression, they have the patience of Job. That phrase comes from this text, but it also comes from a reference, the only reference to Job in the New Testament, which is in James 5, verse 11. So what's in this name, Job? Like many biblical names, it points to a deeper significance of the story itself. Like the poetic Hebrew construction in the text, it's difficult to precisely determine the meaning of the word Job. According to some scholars, the name is a contraction of a name in Hebrew, which meant, where is the divine father? On the other hand, there's a construction that suggests the meaning is closer to the hated or the persecuted one. But in either case, and in both cases, the meaning of the name has everything to do with the experience of feeling God-forsaken. And we know Jesus knew this experience. On the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? called the cry of dereliction. In the narrative, Job's wife asks, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job remains steadfastly resolute in his determination to live before God and to believe, in spite of the experience of tragedy, that God is good and that God is loving. And so instead, Job responds with his own question. 
Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? Questions surround this entire narrative. Rhetorical questions. Existential questions. Aggressive and assertive questions. As one commentator describes it, Job's questions about God are embedded within God's questions about Job. Job's in physical and existential crisis. And the conventional view of things divine and things human is deconstructed in this narrative. And a completely new view is constructed. Instead, Is God worthy to be worshipped given the experience of life, especially in its tragic dimension? That's the question posed by Job. Is Job only worshipping because it's easy and he's well rewarded and protected for doing so? That's the question posed by the heavenly court. Harold Kushner tells the story of assisting a middle-aged couple early in his professional life as a rabbi. They had this bright, young, 19-year-old daughter in her freshman year away at school. And one morning they received a phone call from the school's health care center telling them that their daughter had collapsed on the way to class. It seems a blood vessel burst in her brain. She died before we could do anything for her. We're terribly sorry, they said. As Rabbi Kushner entered the home, he expected to find anger and shock and grief. But the first words they said to him were, you know, Rabbi, we didn't fast last Yom Kippur. Why did they think they were somehow responsible for this tragedy? Who taught them to believe in a God who would strike down an attractive, gifted young woman without warning as a punishment for someone else's ritual infraction? Asks Kushner. You see, wanting to make sense of the experience of life, we often prefer to believe that our behavior can control all of life. We can affect the control of things. We can affect the outcome of things. We can make something of ourselves, and that is indeed true. But the flip side of that understanding is that we must be responsible, therefore, for the bad things that happen to us, too. And that simplistic notion that we're rewarded when we do well and we're punished when we don't do well, that's the very idea that the book of Job seeks to challenge. You see, Job's three friends hold that view. And 
its completely inadequate understanding of the complexity of life. You know, a good friend of mine told me during his ordeal fighting cancer, I wouldn't wish this experience on my worst enemy. It's horrible, it's painful, it's frightening, but I also wouldn't trade it for anything. For I've learned things now and I understand faith and hope and love in ways I never did and never could have before. His experience of the Lord was profoundly deepened and strengthened as he faced his own mortality. He learned some wonderful things in a terrible sort of way. Reminds me of the poem by Robert Browning Hamilton along the road. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. We may indeed learn from sorrow and suffering, and there's truth to that familiar saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yet not all suffering is redemptive. Some of it's just plain horrendous. In a, po- in a play, a Pulitzer Prize winning play by Archibald MacLeish entitled J.B., there's this famous line. I heard upon his dry dung heap that man cry out who cannot sleep. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Take the even, take the odd. I would not sleep here if I could, except for the little green leaves in the wood and the wind on the water. See, the story of Job protests against simplistic answers to the most perplexing questions about human existence. Now, according to Kushner, let us take note of three statements which everyone in the book and most of the readers would like to be able to believe. First, God is all-powerful, causes everything to happen in the world. Nothing happens without God's willing it. Two, God is just and fair and stands for people getting what they deserve so that the good prosper and the wicked are punished. And three, Job is a good person. And as long as Job is healthy and wealthy, we can believe all three of those statements at the same time without any difficulty. But when Job suffers and he loses his possessions and his family and his health, we have a problem. We can no longer make sense of all three of those propositions together. We now can affirm only two of those by denying the third. And so Job's friends conclude Job must not be a good person and he should confess his sins. 
But Job protests. He's done everything right. He's done nothing to deserve this plight. And his existential questions finally receive a response from God at the end of the story. But it's not the answer he's looking for, and it doesn't answer all his questions. It's as if the answer comes, Job, are you God? When Job is reduced to say, no, I'm not. Then the response is, then let me be God. Human existence has more uncertainty and ambiguity than we care to admit. And people of faith sometimes try to take all the mystery out of human existence as if life can be calculated simply. That really life is all just black and white. There are incongruities, there are certainties, and they're not easily explained. We can't take the mystery out of living. And when we experience tra tragedy, we may not know why. But the good news is we're not left to our own devices in the midst of suffering. So let me say three things. First of all, it's not your fault. Sometimes we bring pain on our own lives by the way we live our lives and the choices we make, but in most cases, we're more likely to blame ourselves for things we have no control over. We feel guilty about things that we have done or failed to do, and we think God is watching, and we think God is going to balance the scales of justice, and tragedy is waiting for us because God intends to punish us. Hear this, it's not your fault. Part of what it means to be human is living in a world where things like E. coli can get into our food supply and our bodies become infected. We don't get to control everything. We can't even control the deterioration of our bodies and health. It's not your fault. God isn't out there seeking to punish you. Two, you're not alone. We all face the uncertainties of life and the inexplicable challenge of tragedy. And those uncertainties are better survived when we have the resources of a community to shelter us, to provide support during times of difficulty. But even more than that, we worship a Lord who is with us, Emmanuel. And your suffering matters to God. Your pain, whether it's physical or emotional or mental or spiritual, is the Lord's concern. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus and the suffering of his sisters. Our faith will not protect us from all suffering, and in fact, it may lead to suffering if we're truly faithful to our Lord. So we're not like water that simply takes the path of least resistance, avoiding pain. 
It's no way to live. Sometimes we have to take stands, difficult as they may be, because of our faith. But the scriptures promise us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with longing for in hope we were saved, in hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You know, our daughter, Molly, our eldest, lost her first child in pregnancy, and it was devastating to her. She had her own cry of dereliction. She cried out, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And in one of the two occasions in her life where she heard an audible response from God, God said, just wait. Be patient. It isn't over yet. And now, Many years later, she has two healthy and wonderful children. And finally, three, our Lord has suffered. In Christ, in the crucifixion, Jesus has taken upon himself the pain of suffering and death that we might meet him in the depths of our despair and that he might transcend death to life, suffering to joy. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil, for our Lord is with us. We may have to learn some wonderful things in terrible sorts of ways, you know, in that beautiful anthem that we just heard our choir sing, when simple explanations lie too deep for me to find, I rest in God who holds the whole creation in his mind. I hope in him whose skill and wisdom far exceed my own. The secrets of the hidden depths belong to God alone. Or as our brief statement of faith puts it, in life and death, we belong to God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.